Book two, chapter three of The Mask by Florence Irwin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. One evening Kepner dropped in with an invitation. Would the Howlands dine with him in Chinatown sometime next week? Alison was immediately interested. She had heard much of Chinatown, and this would be her first peep at it. Although Kepner was not just the host that she would have chosen, he was the companion who always best suited Phil. When the evening arrived, Kepner called for his guests at their apartment, and they all walked over, in the December twilight, to the Third Avenue elevated, Mott Street being their ultimate destination. As they left the car, Alison gazed around her on a curious scene. Not for a moment would she have imagined herself in New York, not even in America. The narrow, ill-kept streets ran together in a strange jumble of angles and corners. Only in front of the principal buildings were they well lighted. Second-story balconies reached far out over the sidewalks. Restaurants and shops crowded each other, and the shop windows were curious to behold. China, slippers, fans, coats, and crepes filled some of them, while others displayed tea, wheat sprouts, dried fish, and strange-looking ducks split up the back and flattened. But it was the human element that held Alison Howland's attention. She saw nothing but men and boys, not a single woman, either native or white. The males ranged from the pure-blooded Chinese with slippered feet and coiled cues, on through every grade of half-breed and quarter-breed, down to pasty, almond-eyed children who were almost white. The rugged tan of visiting sailors looked half-Ethiopian in contrast. These sailors were sober, drunk, or half-seas over, as the case might be, and they were there to make a night of it. Kepner conducted his guests to a bright blue restaurant with an oriental name and smell. In the second story they sat down to a meal that began with the dessert and ran backwards to the soup. To Alison the first course was the best. It was preserved kumquats, golden and delicious. She ate sparingly of chop suey and yako main. Unsweetened tea in handless cups was the sole beverage. Noiseless, expressionless native waiters served them. At Kepner's order, and upon the payment of a certain fee, an elaborate mechanical toy was set in motion. It stood encased in glass in the center of the room, and its exploitation was accompanied by weird music. Kepner and Phil talked freely, during the waiter's absences, of the life in the place. Allison heard of women, white women many of them, who were shut up in the back of those houses, and who never saw daylight from year's end to year's end. Stretched on cushions, decked and painted like dolls, drugged with opium, they simply lay there, the chattels of their lords and masters. Life, beautiful, throbbing life, never touched them. It was hideous to imagine. After they had finished their meal and pottered round among the shops a while, the trio went back home, and Kepner came in for a drink and a chat. Those oriental faces never fail to haunt me after I have watched them, he said. They are veritable masks. Not a flicker of expression ever crosses them. Yes, echoed Alison, it is horrible, isn't it? Horrible. It is wonderful. It is the height of self-control. In that they are simply centuries ahead of us. Ahead of us? 
creatures who keep themselves looking like corpses, who never permit a natural ray of life to appear on the surface? They ahead of us? Certainly. That is their armor. Why should they lay their minds bare to the public gaze? Whose business but their own are their feelings? Stoicism is admirable, is it not? But why should we seek to mask all our feelings? They are not to our discredit. Not to our discredit to own. Very much to our discredit to show. That is weakness. Also it puts us at the mercy of others. Nonsense. Nothing of the sort. The face of every adult human being is a mask, more or less successful. We Occidentals are babes compared with the Orientals. But take our highest examples, and you will find that they all approach the Eastern standard. Can you imagine any great diplomat betraying his feelings by his facial expression? Not he. He is far too clever. Children's faces, on the other hand, always reflect every passing emotion. It is because their owners have not yet learned life's greatest lesson. With years they acquire it, not always in the same degree, but according to their sophistication and their self-control. Alison, with her natural hatred of hypocrisy, hotly repudiated this idea. I don't agree with you in the least, she exclaimed. Why should our faces be masks? Only unworthy emotions need to be hidden. What is more beautiful than the expression of a mother bending over her child, her face transfigured by love? What is more subtle than a message conveyed from eye to eye, without the necessity of spoken words? I cannot imagine anything more horrible than keeping a constant watch over yourself, thinking of yourself every moment, repressing all natural emotion, and assuming an everlasting mask. And to see that sort of thing whenever you look around you would be like putting out your hand in the dark, hoping to meet an answering clasp, and grasping instead a cold, clammy, dead hand. Kepner smiled cynically at her intensity. And you yourself make no endeavor to wear a mask? he asked smoothly. Certainly not. As she answered, Alison was suddenly aware that he had formulated one of the reasons for her dislike of him. He did wear a mask. Kepner was looking at her from under his half-closed lids. He spoke very slowly as he said, Then I am to understand that you would be perfectly willing that I should read in your face exactly what you are thinking of me at this moment? What you have often thought of me since I first met you? What you think of? Here he deliberately inclined his head toward her husband and paused, then continued, Of many of us who visit you here, Alison's face flamed, but she stuck to her guns. She determined to answer him as boldly as he deserved, in spite of the fact that he was a guest beneath her roof. If you imagine that you have read any secret feelings I may have about you, she replied steadily, does not that amply prove my contention that I do not wear a mask? Kepner shook his head. No, only that you do not wear it skillfully, as yet. You have no strong natural gift for masks, and your need for one is of recent birth. But you are learning, and, as you are an apt pupil at anything you undertake seriously, you will soon be an expert. Here Phil broke in. He was bored with his talk about masks. Al, he said, no, not you, as his wife looked round. Al Kepner, I mean. See here, 
I'm all fired anxious to land a job like yours. Can't you give me a push somewhere? Ferris is your man for that. Get him to say a good word to his friend Maxon. Maxon has that syndicate in the hollow of his hand. Push that decanter over here, will you, old man? Alison Howland awoke the next morning with the feeling that some disaster had befallen her. Then with returning consciousness came relief. Nothing had happened after all. It was simply the reflex of that horrible trip to Chinatown, and that unpleasant conversation with Kepner about masks. She had been dreaming all night about both of them. And she continued to be haunted by both of them all day. Do what she might, she could not throw off the obsession. Taking the subject of masks, she ran over all the people she knew, trying to see if they were fitted with this armor of the sophisticated. For that was what Kepner had said. Masks were the inevitable mark of sophistication. Did her father and mother wear them? No, she was sure that they didn't. Did Gertrude and Elsa? And to her immense astonishment, the immediate intuitive reply was yes. Perhaps not now, in their own homes, but certainly at the rectory they had taken care not to reveal all that they felt. Did Judge Howland wear a mask? Poor old soul, he emphatically did. A repellent one. One by one she ran over the Coningsboro list, until it occurred to her that it was hardly a fair test. Coningsboro could not really be called sophisticated. Yet even there, and by the light of enlarged experience, she had discovered mask upon mask. In New York she knew scarcely anyone. Nevertheless, she had already encountered masks. Look at Kepner. Look at Ferris with his trumped-up excuse of art to cover his irregular menage. Possibly every man who came to her house wore a mask in her presence. It was a hateful, uncomfortable, disconcerting thought. She wished that it had never been suggested to her. Her thoughts flew to Chinatown and then to the various phases of life in the many-sided city which had come to be her home. The longer she thought, the more stupendous it all seemed. There, in places like Coningsboro, people passed whole lifetimes without even glimpsing any other side of things. And suddenly Alison became aware that, with all her present loneliness and her homesickness and her heartaches, she could never again be happy with as contracted a horizon as that which had encompassed her childhood and maidenhood. The call of life had wooed her, and she had yielded to its spell. She longed to talk it over with some intimate friend. That opportunity lacking, she went out and bought three good-sized blank books. Returning with them, she carried a table, a chair, and a pot of ink into the little unused room which she had purposed to assign to the servant who had never materialized. Turning the key in the door of this room, Alison Howland sat down and lost herself, and when she came to life again, it was nearly three hours later. That night, after their return from the restaurant dinner, and before any of the men had come in, Alison suddenly said to her husband, Phil, describe Chinatown. Describe it? Yes. Suppose you were trying to paint a picture of it to a person who had never seen it. How would you do it? Immediately interested by so easy and congenial a task, her husband began. With his usual exquisite skill, he caught every highlight, every depth, 
every half-tone and contrast and to each was given the exact word the precise phrase that best fitted it alison leaned forward drinking in each syllable the next morning she compared her husband's description with the one she herself had already written needless to say hers was entirely outclassed she took a loose leaf and wrote phil's sentences as nearly as she could remember them then she measured them against her own and tried to classify the points of difference in the two word pictures after this it became one of their pet pastimes to play what they called alison's game she would invariably suggest the subject phil would never fail to give it an exquisite dress about this time there arrived one day aunt juliet's gift to alison it was a beautiful platinum pendant set with small diamonds and one sapphire of quite good size alison was pleased of course but not to the extent that most girls of her age would have been pleased she knew little of gems and the money value of a thing meant nothing to her except when she was buying it cheap imitation jewelry she abhorred she liked jewels rather than jewelry but she liked them from a purely artistic standpoint a pendant of wrought gold entirely bare of gems would have given her as much pleasure provided it were just as delicate and fine not so phil he was greatly interested in the new bauble how much do you suppose it is worth he asked why phil what a question i haven't the remotest idea hundreds or thousands he persisted not thousands certainly i should hope perhaps hundreds perhaps tens have you ever seen your aunt never how old is she gertrude says she is over sixty i was astonished to hear it but of course she must be i have always been told that she was twelve years older than my father has she children no her only child a little daughter died when she was quite tiny and your aunt is very rich fabulously i believe answered alison ironically but i should think it might make small difference to us under certain circumstances i should think it might make quite a bit i suppose gertrude coddled up to her to beat the band that's just like gertrude it is not in the least like her as you should know the sharpness of her voice struck the man he didn't want to quarrel with her oh cut the heroics al he said good-naturedly i only meant that gertrude was lucky she always strikes the soft snaps i tell you what let's do let's save up for a trip to europe oh phil she cried ecstatically could we possibly do you think i'd rather do it than anything in the world how much would it cost we could go on a cheap boat and stop in inexpensive lodgings do you think we could manage it in a year or two from that moment the dream never left her she began to save even car-fare and to walk everywhere she made a point of declining the proffered gansevoort carriages and motors because accepting entailed tips saying nothing about it to her husband she got a pasteboard box and cut a slit in its lid then tying it up with ribbons she hid it under a pile of lingerie in her bureau drawer and into it she began to slip every coin and small bill that she could possibly spare she did not draw on her wedding fund for this purpose that fund had marvelously shrunken from fifteen hundred dollars to six hundred it reminded alison of balzac's famous peau de chagrin 
so fast did it dwindle she had in return however a well and adequately furnished apartment the folly of robbing peter to pay paul being apparent alison kept her six hundred in the bank against future needs but into her savings-box she slid all the small dribs that she could shave off the daily living expenses to phil unfortunately saving up meant humoring himself to the extent of spending every available penny and then living in the hope of some lucky windfall big funds phil might possibly be able to hoard as he had never had the chance to try it is charitable to permit him the benefit of the doubt but small sums had had repeated opportunities to speak for themselves they simply ran through his fingers like water it was the same with everything not only money testified to his method health natural endowments time all were prodigally squandered until some future miracle became the sole hope that is the result of being artistic instead of practical temperamental instead of logical what an odd world this would be if everyone allowed his temperament to lead him by the nose End of Book 2, Chapter 3